Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In case you missed the news in the last episode, I thought I ought to mention again that we're going to turn Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. We'll be taking the Barge House at the Oxo Tower Wharf on the South Bank and asking a fistful of companies and agencies to tell visitors how their material will shape our future. It's all very exciting and there'll be more details as the year progresses. So, on with the show. And my guests in this episode recorded earlier this week are designers Nipper Doshi and Jonathan Levine. The duo, who also happened to be real-life partners, met while they were both studying at London's Royal College of Art in the late 90s. I first came across their work in 2003 when I saw an extraordinary range of cookware they had designed for French company Tefal. In terms of form, each item was incredibly precise. However, flip the pots and pans over and on the base was an unexpectedly beautiful pattern. The pieces seemed different and incredibly exciting, a combination of contemporary European design and thinking from somewhere else entirely. Since then, the pair have gone on to work for the likes of Moroso, Hay, Quadrat, BD Barcelona, Gallery Creo, Capellini and many others, creating textiles, furniture, glassware, shoes, lighting and even ice cream that deftly combines their contrasting skills, ideas and backgrounds. Hello, guys. Thank you very much for doing this. Hi, Grant. Was that all reasonably accurate? I'm getting a thumbs up over there. Good. Okay. You can write for us. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things we do on this podcast is give listeners a sense of where you work. Maybe could you describe the space we're in? It was originally an 1850s furniture factory, right? That's right. So our studio is in the heart of Columbia Road, the East End, and that somehow seems to be where we've always worked. It's on the corner. It's a beautiful 1850s furniture factory, which was then occupied by artists, uh, a textile designer. And then we've had it now for the last almost 15 years. Because you're in Spitalfields before. So what is it about the East End that you find so attractive to work in? There's something about these old buildings. They were designed really to let in maximum light um, because they were working spaces. So it's perfect for our work because we use color a lot and we need good light for that. But there's also something about the kind of rustic nature of these spaces, which allows us to just be really creative and, and use them as, you know, workshops and just get really kind of messy in our process. Well, I was going to say, there is, there's making going on here. When we arrived, you were wiping clay from your hands. That's right. So yeah. making is very important and being able to make in this space is obviously vital. Personally speaking, I've always been a maker. I didn't set out with the idea of doing design. Actually, I was a cabinet maker at 16. I left school and went to cabinet making school. So I learned to use wood um, for the first two years. And I was making things really well, actually, Mm. to perfection. But they lacked a design element. Um, I don't think that I would rate any of the designs of the things I made. But um, I learned making at a very young age. Until last week, the subject that's dominated the news agenda was the pandemic. Has it been for you? Did you have lots of work? Has it changed the practice at all? Of course, we carried on working through the pandemic. In answer to your question, the studio and our space also, it became another space that we could go to and became even more important during the pandemic that we had our studio and we could continue working. We have been busy, of course, and I think the nature of our work is such that it takes projects 
almost two years from start to come to fruition. So in that sense, I think design is quite a slow industry to be in. And fortunately for people in our industry, because people were at home and in indoor spaces, they realized the value mm. of how they live, the spaces that they live in, the pieces that they have. So luckily, I think that it's been all right. There's one major way in which our process adjusted during the COVID period is that usually we would fly quite a lot to meet our clients. Mm -hmm. We'd go and make presentations to them. But this time it was our made pieces that were flying and not us. It's a very effective way of presenting an idea to a client. I mean, if you take paper planes, for example, that we made for Moroso, that started life as a cardboard mock-up, you know, with a wood frame. Patrizia Moroso came to our studio and she sat in the chair and she loved it. She loved the sense of space that it created around her. She had a real sense of the object and what it could be. And this was communicated through the made object, which then became industrially produced and, and right. is still available to buy. So, yeah, this idea that we make something and then it sort of turns into an industrially produced object, I think, is an intrinsic part of our process. But yeah, getting back to the question, it's also a very effective way of presenting ideas that the object speaks for itself. So you were posting prototypes exactly. or sending, shipping prototypes out yes. to clients. Exactly. You weren't with them. We weren't with them. And they would arrive, they would unpack them, put them together, and we'd get some feedback, you know, and have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so who were, I mean, can you tell me who you're working for during the pandemic? It's interesting that as soon as the pandemic, you know, as soon as we went into lockdown, two new Italian companies approached us to work with them. Right. And one of them we haven't met in person. It's a very well-known Italian brand. And then the other one, you know, we met them twice and we've developed a whole collection that's going to launch in June. I can't say right now who oh. these people are. but um, <laughs> And of course, we are working with Hay, with Quadrat and all the Ketal and all the other companies that, you know, we've had long-standing collaborations with. Yeah. But it's fascinating that we did two major projects without really meeting the client. And it seems to have worked, I think. Of course, slower, much slower. The process has been, you know, it takes longer to look at details on the screen, on the computer, to explain things. But I've kind of enjoyed not traveling wastefully as well. I realize you can do quite a lot of work mm -hmm. remotely. Mm -hmm. When I say remotely, I mean in the studio. Well, what you can't do, I guess, is understand fully the culture of the company that you're working with in the way that designers often talk about, you know, going into the factory, understanding how things are put together, understanding the brand's DNA, if you like. Presumably that's much harder over, over Zoom. But you have to remember, Grant, that we've been designing things for almost 20 years now. You know, we have been to quite a lot of factories. So there is a kind of... <laughs> intrinsic understanding of how things are made. So unless you're working in a completely new industry where we don't know about the technology, I think that making is such a part of our process that I don't feel I need to go to a factory anymore, though I love to work with craftspeople and the prototypers and the makers to solve problems. But that's kind of at more at a technical level. We're nearly in March now. Milan would traditionally be in April, the Milan being the biggest design show arguably in the world. It's now taking place in June. You'll be having things there, obviously. Yes. Can you tell us what? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, of course, we're going to have some furniture because it's a furniture fair. And uh, it'll be, you know, our first collaboration with this company. 
a well-known Italian respected company as well. So I think that we're probably only going to have two new collections in Milan. Okay. Which is also, I think, kind of going back to the pandemic, I think one of the things that Jonathan and I really decided in the last two, two and a half years is that it's important to launch fewer collections, but to really launch work that matters to the company that we are working with and to our practice. So this idea of doing lots of pieces for lots of little companies or big brands, I think it felt like we needed to focus on what mm. we are making and what our output is going to be. It's partly linked to our output and what we're able to put out with the quality that we want to create. And given that our process is largely involving making, it takes time to make things. It's a lot quicker, obviously, to make something on the computer and send it out and, and work in that way. So there's a lot of refinement that happens in the process. If you look at some of the products that we have in our studio on the walls, you can see that there are many iterations of the mock-ups and the prototypes before we get to presenting something to our clients. The advantage of this process is that there's much less development for them to do, and we cut the time short mm. in the development cycle. But the investment of time is great for us. For each product we do, we, we commit to it and invest good time in it. But also I think that even though we've been working for so many years now, we both still love design and we love detail and we are still involved in every aspect of a project. And I think that that's something that neither of us have wanted to give up, this kind of hands-on approach to drawing, making, refining, and that takes time. How big is the studio now? We have Fiona sitting very quietly and, and very attentively, Fiona. Yes. Uh, how many staff? Are there more people or is it just the three of you? Well, at the moment, it's just three of us. Right. Uh, and I think that the pandemic has changed that purely and Brexit, right. as we were talking about before, that it's not so straightforward now to have people to from find Europe. People. Mm. And also, I think due to the pandemic, you know, we were a team of five and people also wanted to be back in their country. And I think that understandably, because all of our staff have been from the EU, I think that when the pandemic hit, people wanted to go back to the country where they came from because mm. they couldn't see their families for a long time. But, you know, it is how it is. But it's important. I mean, five is still not huge. No, it isn't huge. Yeah. And we never have been. I think we've never been a studio of more than six people. But also we are really focusing on design. You know, a lot of studios, if they're big studios, it's because they're doing interiors or they're doing other kind of consultancy work. We really stuck to pure design in the way that I think of Jasper, for mm. example, mm. or Burulek, and, you know, really focused on objects and things. And I think for that, it can only work with a small team if you want to do that quality of work. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, look, we're here to talk about materials and techniques. As I said in the intro, I've been aware of your work since 2003, which is nearly 20 years ago, my God. And uh, one of the things that's generally intriguing about you as a duo, who both live and work together, obviously, is this sense of a kind of playful tension that goes on that exists between the pair of you. I mean, would it be fair to say you come at a project or the world, really, through a different perspective? Well, of course, I think at a very practical and factual level, I of course, grew up in India and in a culture completely different from the UK or the industrialized West. Uh, India was still very much a developing economy uh, when I was growing up. 
quite shut from the world in one respect, but also incredibly plural. And I've often talked about it that, you know, there are parts of where I grew up where we had a furniture factory next to a bicycle workshop, a paper cutting factory, a chaiwala, mm. temples, cows, you know, so it was incredibly plural and intense. And also when I say plural, not just architecturally, but also in terms of religion, languages and influences from different parts of the world. And I grew up thinking that a Vespa was an Italian scooter, you know, or so was a Fiat or Art Deco was a, you know, a Bombay architectural style. So I grew up thinking that's how the world is. It's plural. It's, you know, mix of everything. And I think that voice is very strong in me. And it's really something that I try to bring in our design industry, which is still very Eurocentric mm. and it's very focused. It has very strong kind of tenets of modernism, form follows function. And I feel that our industry is missing the fact that the world is big. And, you know, we talk about design in terms of European design or maybe Japanese design. There are many other cultures who have a very different point of view in terms of material, the value of rituals. The world is much more layered. And design can be incredibly narrow, I feel, as well, because it's very defined what is design, what is not, what is masculine, you know, what is good design. And so I think I always try to challenge that. So what did your parents do? I'm kind of intrigued as to how you became a designer, when you became interested in design. Were you from a design background? I wasn't from a design background as such, although my father started his career in theatre. Right. And from my mum's side of the family, my grandfather was an aesthete. He used to collect objects, commission paintings. Our clothes were tailored. They were tailor-made, although I don't come from a wealthy background. Mm. You know, you selected your fabric. You went to a tailor. You'd kind of imagine what you wanted to wear, and then you'd brief the person who was making the garment for you. So I think that making was very much a part of my upbringing. Did you do any making, though? I didn't do any making. Right. So that's interesting because, of course, India is also steeped in a caste system. Yes. And making is something that most middle-class kids from my kind of background don't do because you have people to make things. I definitely loved makers. Mm. And I think that also what drew me to Jonathan is because although I love makers, I'm not a maker myself. And I have this incredible, I mean, awe of people who can make things. And in India, we often talk about to know something is, okay, it's knowledge, but supreme knowledge is to know how to make something or how to do something. And I think that for me, that's where my love of making comes mm. from. That's, that's all very sweet, Nipper. But really, I, I think <laughs> that your sort of motive was really to get me to make your Royal College of Art models. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it all started. I didn't see it at the time. I, you were being manipulated. I, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, uh, Jonathan, you were born in Scotland. Your parents ran a soft toy making factory, That's so right. you were surrounded by cardboard boxes, I presume. Well, yeah. Scotland was interesting because I grew up next to the factory. Right. And my parents, they were, I consider them entrepreneurs because they started this business very much as a kind of small scale production of kits, soft toy kits, initially using sheep fleece to make these animals, which then turned into fabric kits that would be stamped from sheets of fabric. My mum designed the toys. She would draw animals, make 
them in clay, right. make paper patterns to create the volume of those animals, and then they'd be turned into kits and then sold nationally initially, mainly to sort of John Lewis and haberdasheries up and down the country because there was a kind of a culture of craft in the 70s. And a lot of these haberdasheries were looking for a new product to sell other than wool for knitting. Mm. So the business took off. It did really well. Yes, there were lots of cardboard boxes around. I was living next to the factory. So I was the sort of sense of what, what is domestic space and industrial space. Those boundaries were really blurred. I mean, if you have two parents that are really dedicated to starting a business, then <laughs> you're not going to get a huge amount of attention. You had a lot of time by yourself. Is this what you're saying? Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want the violins to come out <laughs> just yet. <laughs> you know, we had to entertain ourselves, yeah. I would say. But we were surrounded by materials. And I don't know how responsible this was, but I was given a sharp blade at a really young age to cut. How young? I can't remember, but I was cutting... Um, sheet, sheets Too of card. I was cutting okay. up boxes and making all kinds of things with brown tape and cardboard. So I've come not very far since then, I would say. <laughs> but, so when did you decide to be a cabinet maker? You were 16 when you started, I think. Yes, well, I was 16. Well, I'd just done my GCSEs and we had these things called an ISCO test, which was sort of to measure your aptitude and your ability in sort of different subjects. My academic um, record wasn't looking so great but my manual dexterity was off the charts and I was recommended to do an apprenticeship. I loved making things at school as well. I spent all my time in the kind of design lab, mm. inventing things and making stuff. So it was quite obvious to me at that time that a two-year course in making would be a really good thing to do instead of A-levels. So you were making cabinets, mm. furniture presumably. When yeah. did you decide that you wanted to design pieces instead of just make them? So after two years of pushing the plane and cutting wood, I decided that it would be a good idea to add the design element. I was aware that there was a, a sort of something missing from my process. I was still sort of designing and inventing stuff to be made in wood, but I wanted to study design to focus on the quality of things that I was making in mm. terms of ideas. So that's when I went to Bucks, Bucks. College yeah, 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 to study design, three-year course. But the making element never really left. And I would say now, although, you know, I'm still making things, I'm not making the final article. That's the main difference. It's, it's um, really to use making as a, a part of the process. Mm. It's a way of thinking now for me, a way of having ideas. And whereas Nipper achieves this through her drawings. Through your drawing. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into this because it's quite intriguing. Oh, stop there this then. Is, this is, no, no, you don't have yeah. to. <laughs> Just interjecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's part of the contrast. I mean, Nipper, I'm quite keen. Just We've heard about Jonathan going to Bucks. I mean, you went to the National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad, a school that was founded by Charles and Ray Eames in the 1960s. What was that like? Presumably it taught a kind of Western sense of design. Was that unfair? I mean, it's been quite controversial of late, I think. What was interesting was that when Charles and Ray Eames wrote the manifesto for the design school, they were invited by the government of India actually. Right. They were commissioned by the government of India to analyze and propose a solution to the kind of quality of manufactured products going down. So, you know, what could the government do? And part of their recommendation was to form a design school. Mm. So what was interesting for me that Charles and Ray Eames traveled around India and really recorded India's crafts and way of doing things and almost the design as a way of life. You know, they have this beautiful film about the banana leaf. 
and how it's considered primitive. And then their film kind of evolves into food being served in very ornate silver thalis. But actually, the banana leaf is the most sophisticated way to serve food and to use natural materials, for example. So I think although their proposal was very rooted in Indian culture, by the time the school was actually founded, there was a huge influence from Bauhaus and the Ulm School. And modernism definitely, you know, was the kind of foundation of the school. And we were learning, as I've said often, you know, learning about brown coffee makers. You know, I'd, I'd never used that thing. I'd never seen it anywhere, you know, in nobody's house that <laughs> yeah. I went to. Yeah. Because, you know, we made chai on in stainless steel pots, putting all the ingredients together and boiling it. And of course, my tutor, my furniture tutor had studied furniture design in Denmark with Morgensen and all the kind of Danish masters. So that was another very strong influence in our work. But I think what we did have at college was this real sensitivity to Indian craft. So the college definitely made sure that all the students were aware of Indian craft skills, whether it was textiles or furniture or ceramics. So that was a kind of counterbalance to the European design that was mm. being taught in school. And I saw that as a real kind of, what could you say, a disconnect between what I was learning and what design really was like in my country. And I think it hasn't changed very much. But of course, India is very different now. And, you know, it's much more industrial. And a lot of the objects now that we use in the industrialized West are also part of people's everyday life. But I think it was an incredibly for me, a transformation, of course, to be in this beautiful city with 600-year-old temples. But right opposite our college was the Kite Museum designed by Corbusier. Then Louis Kahn had designed IIM, uh, the Management Institute. Right, yeah, yeah. Corbusier had built three or four buildings in this city, which we had Didn't Corbusier design, no, Corbusier's assistant designed your My aunt's, aunt's house. house, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, of course, and then my aunt was married into the Sarabai family. So, you know, we used to go to Villa Sarabai. We used to go to the Kite Museum and then also the Mill Owners Association building. So these, all these buildings were kind of scattered in the city. And yet my favorite part was the old, the walled part of the city where you had Ayurvedic physicians, you had textile makers. I think that's where I kind of really developed my love for craft, textiles, and, you know, you had streets where you had a Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Jain, Christian home all on one street. Mm. And I think that for me was, that was my idea of heaven, Grant. I thought this is what heaven must be like, you know, with all this kind of juxtaposition, different influences, people, religion, architecture, you know, making but I think kind of interestingly, you weren't studying textile design, you were studying industrial design. That's right. And, and you were quite resistant to colour and textiles for quite a long time, I think I'm right in saying. Yes, absolutely. I think that I thought textiles are something that girls do, you know. And of course, I was an industrial designer. Mm. I was, I could make things. And, um, you know, my work was quite minimal when I was at college. I didn't have a choice. It had to be. I did resist it for a long time also because of the association of the kind of design women do. And I was really fighting that. Mm. And I did not want to fall into a cultural cliche or a professional cliche. But of course, when I left India also, I realized that it was a world that I really loved, the world that I was rejecting when I was growing up to a certain extent. 
the world of craft, of color, of textiles, is something that I really grew up with. And I knew about it as well, because, you know, if you're an Indian person, you know your mom has this sari collection, which uses different embroidery techniques, weaves, jacquard, and it's something that you just know intrinsically. But also I think that when Ketal, I think, was the first company where when I went to meet them, um, they put a pile of thread like on the table and they said, we want you to do our fabric and our colors. And I jumped. I literally jumped because I thought, why are you asking me to do that? I want to do a chair for you. Mm. You know, Jonathan wasn't in that meeting. They said, don't worry. We're also going to ask you to do a chair and furniture. And then I think I kind of thought, well, why not? You know, why not give it a go? And why do I have to resist, uh, you know, doing textiles and materials? And I can say I'm actually really good at it, you know, without kind of wanting to boast about it. It's it's a real strength that comes naturally to me. It's work that I can do almost without thinking. You know, it's just, it's in me. Yes. I mean, fascinating because obviously you weren't trained in it. Yes. Can we talk about, because you both met at the Royal College of Art doing product design. Did you always intend to go to London, to the Royal College, Nipper? No, I didn't. It so was, how did that happen? Of course, that was because of Jasper. Morrison, the uh, Jasper furniture Morrison. designer. Yes, and I remember design. in 1994, I went to see Jasper in his uh, studio in London. His house and his studio were in Whitechapel. And of course, I went to see him. And there's a funny story around it. I don't know if you know, but... I'd forgotten the house number and I walked up and down the street and uh, he was ex-directory, of course, Jasper being Jasper. So I knew the street, but I didn't have his number, his house number. So I walked up and down the street and it was the only house that didn't have lace curtains. It has a, <laughs> you know, a white kind of glazed window. Yeah, that makes you know? sense. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I thought, okay, this has to be Jasper's <laughs> studio. And there I was and I asked him for a job. I said, can I come and work with you? And he said, no, you're not ready. And he said, I recommend you go to the Royal College of Art. And I said, well, Jasper, I I couldn't afford it. And he said to me, and this is also another time, Grant, that he said, well, once they give you admission, they will make sure that they will find funding for you. And he said, the college is really rich. You know, I mean, everything's changed in the UK. Education has changed. Education has changed. You know, there was money uh, for education then. And he also wrote a personal recommendation for me to the Royal College of Art. And, and what about you, Jonathan? Were you always going to go after Bucks? Was that a natural progression? Well, I could have really kind of gone off the rails at that point. <laughs> but I have um, an uncle, Robin Levine. Yes, indeed. Very famous ceramics designer. Yes. And um, I mean, he's been influential in a number of ways, I would say, you know, um, you know, having been a furniture designer, furniture maker, I was always really inspired by his work in that he was making sinks and bathrooms, a very kind of uh, sculptural process. And I loved the fluid forms of his models and the things that he was making. And I always somehow wished that I could go from a more kind of constructional approach to making to a more sculptural approach in in my work. And I think the Royal College of Art became that process through which Mm. I transferred my skills from furniture maker to kind of, what do we call, maybe call it product design, I don't know, but a more sculptural approach. What did your work look like at that point? Well, before the Royal College of Art, I would say it was more kind of um, 
well, things were made of wood, essentially. So mm. they would be constructed. There would be a very strong spatial element and proportional element to the work. But I think I missed the sensuality of form that Robin had in his work that he was creating. And the Royal College of Art, I mean, the first year at the Royal College of Art, it was amazing in, in one respect because we had people like Nipper coming from you know different countries and a sort of influx of culture and experience was incredible. We had Brian Eno doing a project at one point in the school. And there were so many influences in the first year that I got quite kind of lost in terms of my own direction, what I was meant to be doing there. And it was really in the second year that I put everything together and realized that drawing, I had a love for drawing. Mm. And I just put all of the kind of lectures aside and just did drawing full time. And alongside that, I was sculpting pieces like chairs, lights. It was irrelevant, really, what I was creating. The point was that I was really interested in form and geometry. And I was particularly interested in the coming together of geometry and free form and this idea of the interplay between a kind of cerebral, mathematic, geometric approach to design and the intuitive approach where you can evoke a feeling and emotion through your work and the coming together of these opposites, if you like. Mm. So drawing on the one hand and then making and sculpting on the other in the final year of the Royal College of Art. And I think that's where I really established my kind of direction, my love in design. Mm. I mean, talking about love, we need to touch on the fact that you we, are we do, I guess, living yes. together. Yeah. It wasn't love at first sight when you're at the Royal College. There's, there's no. not, for, not for Nipper. No. It was something <laughs> was quite, quite the opposite for Nipper. I think she was quite repulsed initially. <laughs> no, I wasn't. You were just such not, an arrogant not, not for aesthetic, Not for aesthetic reasons. But <laughs> oh, he was arrogant. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Was, unfortunately. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I wouldn't the, have imagined well, that. Just for the first day, and then I met Nipper. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is this story that gets told quite a lot, and just for people who maybe, you know, don't know your your background that well, where Jonathan, you asked Nipper for a critique on yeah, that a was project a that you'd done, and, and yes. your reply, Nipper, was that you... I was expecting, yeah, that's great. I love it. You know, go ahead. <laughs> um, but it was quite, it was different, you know, to what I expected, Nipper actually said, no, that's not, I think you could do a lot better than that. And I was resistant. I was quite defiant, you know, convinced that I'd done this great thing. And Nipper said, well, you know, I can't be your friend if I don't respect your work. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you then go away and, and completely rejig the, I mean, what were you designing? I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of, no, I did. I did. I pushed myself. Um, and that was a great thing about having somebody so frank and honest and direct to have alongside you at college. I mean, how else are you going to grow, you know, if people don't tell you what they think directly? But I think also it's an English thing, right? You never really, I mean, I had no idea that, you know, everything, you had to kind of say things politely or kind of say one thing <laughs> and mean another thing. And, you know, so I didn't kind of, and I still haven't learned the kind of art of... Um, Moderation you know, how to say what you want to say in the English way. And I think, of course, when I was at college in India, we would push each other, all my classmates. And and I think it really annoyed me that Jonathan had made one thing. And just because he'd made it perfectly, he thought it was done. And it really made me cross that he thought that that's it, it's done. I'm like, it's not done, can't you see? And And it is true that I guess our relationship started by being working together or being classmates. 
We didn't actually work together. No, but what I'm saying is it was rooted in being classmates together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was really important for me that I respected his work. And I think it's true of me, generally speaking, that what we do, it's not that I judge what people do, but I have to respect what they do. Because what you do really reflects also who you are. It's not that work is separate from who you are as a person and how you do something. So, of course, it just kind of, I knew that I couldn't be friends with someone like that, you know. and. Uh, it was great in some ways. So the seeds of uh, the seed of a great uh, friendship, I would say, of respect. But it wasn't until much later, actually, that we started working together. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask that because yeah. because you left the Royal College in what two thousand. We left in ninety seven. Oh, you left in ninety seven. Yes. Sorry, and you, you, uh, you formed the studio we, in two thousand. That's correct. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But you'd worked for David Chipperfield. You'd been at SCP. You'd gone back to India for a while. That's right. And Jonathan, you'd worked at Ross Lovegrove's yes. studio. And I'm wondering what you picked up in that three-year period that you then brought in when you got back together to work. Of course, I was trying to go as far away from furniture-making designers as I could. So I landed on my feet with Ross Lovegrove and his studio. He was creating a diverse range of projects for Japan Airline, Takoya. So... It was perfect for me. It was where I wanted to be in terms of designing more sculptural pieces and focusing on this um, love of form and material that I'd developed at the Royal College of Art. And to be able to apply that within an industrial commercial context, I, I think was really great for me. I would say that after three years at Ross's studio, I was ready for something else. And I always wanted to start my own practice. That's you know, there was no doubt there. Maybe that comes from my parents and their process of starting a business. I, I have no idea, but I, I was sure that I wanted to have, have my, own, my own business. But I, I think that I realized that if I was to go out there and work as a designer on my own, there'd be something missing, I think. I, I really felt that there were enough designers who could do the same kind of work that I could do. And I really felt that with Nippa, we could make a more layered approach together and a more layered offering in our work if we work together you know for reasons that you know there's the cultural element and there's far more to offer if we worked as a partnership so that came in 2000 when we decided to work together so you started working together before you started dating in other words or was it at no the same we were time, college or? together so we were in college from 95 to 97 and we actually got together right at the end of college Ah, okay and okay. it's interesting because, of course, Jonathan got a job straight away when he graduated from college. And, you know, I cleaned for friends mm. and then I got an internship working at SCP. And then Jasper also recommended me to David Chipperfield Studio. So, you know, Jasper's kind of helped me in also kind of helping me get work mm. and recommending me to David. But I think that what I learned, of course, it was very hard. Grant and to talk about it sort of now that first of all you know to be a woman in design to be from India not really having permission to work in the UK so it was very very hard to actually also start my career and starting really even after the Royal College starting really at the bottom so to speak of course if I was in India I would have got a really good job straight away and it, Creatively, there was a lot more freedom to an extent. But I think what I really learned, especially, you know, working at 
I don't want to say SCP in particular, but I think because I was doing production drawings and things like that, you know, I learned kind of working on other people's designs. Mm. And I think that's really humbling. And I was very happy to do technical drawings for whether it was Jasper's project or Gritchich or Terence Woodgate, getting prices and things like that. But of course, it was not at all creative. And I think at Chipperfield, what I really learned was to work in a big team. And it's one of those studios where men and women were treated completely equally. Right. So I think that's something I really enjoyed. You know, there were some really strong men and women young men and women working in the team. I have some friends that I made that are my friends now. The business aspect of it, the fact that an architecture project that was started when I was there is still some of the projects are still going on. And, you know, I remember he started working on the Neuer uh, Museum, for example. And so I think what I loved working for other people was, of course, the other people that I met, but also it taught me about business and it taught me about architecture and spaces and, you know, other things that I wouldn't have learned if I was working in a normal design studio. Did you face prejudice then because you're a woman, because you were from India? Of course. Mm. I mean, really terrible prejudice, you know, and it's not maybe a moment to talk about it in any detail or to kind of call out people. But I think I was puzzled, actually, because I grew up in India and I didn't face racism. You know, I grew up in my own culture with my own people. So I think at that point, I didn't even realize, I was just puzzled that why couldn't I get, you know, why couldn't I get jobs or why I wasn't as successful as Jonathan even. I felt that there was a barrier, but I couldn't figure out what the barrier was. Because I hadn't grown up in the UK, I didn't even know what racism was unless it was overt. Sometimes it was overt and then you kind of think stupid people, but... You know, there was a lot of prejudice, which was so undercover that you couldn't point your finger and say, that's prejudice, because I wasn't looking for it and I hadn't experienced it before. And I think that the reason we started working together in some ways, because Jonathan was getting the projects and I thought, okay, I'll just help him. So in some ways, I think for me, it was just, I was happy to work on projects that he had with Tom Dixon, for example, working with Habitat and things like that. And I think that it was very humbling, actually, I think, for me to work in a foreign country because you completely lose your status as an immigrant and as a woman. But very quickly, Nepa, we, we did, sorry to interrupt, but we did come to the Tefal project that Grant mentioned earlier. Yes. And I think that was a really decisive moment for us when we managed to kind of bring together the sort of cultural knowledge with the design experience that we'd both had. We made a proposal. We used to write letters and proposals every day. We used to take a day over crafting these proposals. And a lot of them just went into what I call the black hole because nothing came back. But we'd written a really great proposal to uh, Jackie Moulin at Tefal. And we'd pointed out, you know, various observations in India relating to uh, cuisine and food culture and proposed that we combine Tefal's expertise in manufacture with a more kind of culturally attuned sensitivity to Indian cuisine and, and create a new collection directly and specifically for India that was becoming more important as a global commercial um, market arena, or market, yeah, whatever. And I would say that's the first time where we actually really brought our talents and experience together. In I mean, it's quite interesting I, I, to talk about that project very briefly because 
I remember seeing it for the first time and it gave me quite a start, if I'm honest with you. It seemed to come out of nowhere. There was nobody else doing work like it at that particular point in time, as far as I can remember. I mean, did you feel as if you were going out on a limb? Actually, you know, it was so exciting to work on that project because I remember it was an opportunity almost to have a new visual language in design, apart from all the cultural intelligence mm. and the research that went into the product. It was an opportunity to really mix things up and to create a new language which was truly hybrid. And it was really a coming together of different worlds because you have the really high technology of Tefal. They have a factory with 3,000 people and completely industrial. And yet everything to do with material intelligence, the cultural references, the shapes, it felt radical even when we were doing it and exciting at the same time. And I do feel that when we also did the patterns on the base, in a small way, I think it also kind of set a new way of looking at design and this kind of plurality and cultural hybridity, which is not mm. a great word, but it was a new language, I felt. And that language was us. Talking about you, obviously, I mean, just talk about your work. There's always a temptation, I've probably, well, I'm sure I have done it, to write about you as a duo in kind of binary terms. Nipper, arguably more of a talker, born and raised in India, so naturally has this innate understanding of colour and pattern. Jonathan, a bit more reserved, British, provides <laughs> a kind of three-dimensional form and the making chops. I mean, is it that simple in terms of the way Johnny's you, you not work? reserved. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think that, of course, I, I love talking about ideas, but I think actually I'm harder to kind of be friends with so to speak. So I think maybe I have that kind of reserve, which is supposed to be English reserve, but I don't think it's that binary, actually. Mm. I would say that we are both creative. So that's kind of, you know, so it's not like one is creative and one is doing production. I think we are both creative and we both have a strong point of view. So I think that also kind of goes back to the fact that's why also projects take longer because, you know, it's, kind of two people working on arguing. something. <laughs> I don't know if it's constantly arguing. It's not that. I, you know, it's again, not as simple as that. Fiona in the background is just smiling, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it isn't binary at all. I think that um, often some projects that you might think that might be more coming from Jonathan, but it could be that I've done a sketch in my book or Jonathan's made something and then I've done a drawing of that in my book. So it's, you know, sometimes when the piece is done, we don't really know where the ideas come from. Mm. And I think that's really exciting as well, that in the end, you don't know when exactly the idea happens. And if there is an ambiguity, you do try and take claim. I, I, yeah, it's always my idea. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, I mean, is that because you draw and you make? And yeah. so you can sign the you, you sign the sketchbook. I that well, Nipper's sketch. drawings have become quite a thing, I would say. Yeah, very beautiful. Yeah. And that they are, yeah, stunning. What I admire about Nipper's process is that her drawings really reflect the love with which she's having, you know, ideas and, and working with colour and, and form. And for me, my drawings are, are very schematic and kind of wiry and kind of messy. So they never get published. <laughs> I don't know if it's that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I make you things. Them, so, you know. well, yes, I do. John just throws his drawings. But for me, they're it? just a sort of stepping stone, really, towards yeah. what I'm trying to make. They are very schematic, and it's just a one little sketch, and then I'm off back to making something. 
because it just sets off the idea for me, the sketch. Whereas for Nipper, it's a sort of piece in itself. It's a sort of immersive process through which she kind of just conjures the flavor and the visual identity of a piece and the whole kind of the personality comes through in those drawings. Or the proportion. Yeah, I mean, all of that. I mean, it's a kind yeah. of... For me, that has to happen through making. And if there is one sort of definitive difference and one sort of binary observation or reality there, it's that I invest time in making mm. and Nipper invests her time in her drawings. Mm. I mean, can we talk about the making? We can, yeah. Um, and cardboard. Cardboard, yeah. And making these, which we've alluded to yeah. already, that you make yes. these prototypes in cardboard. What is it about cardboard as a material? Why do you find it so fascinating to prototype, to make in? Well, I kind of switch between different mediums depending on what I'm creating. And I was making things in foam and sculpting things in foam for a long period. And then I realized that actually for making large sort of spatial objects like chairs, you've got to take off a lot of material <laughs> before you actually describe what it is that you're trying to create. Whereas cardboard, on the other hand, allows you very quickly to make a space or to kind of describe a space through pattern cutting. And I think that cardboard starts life as this sort of stiff, flat, two-dimensional surface. And then by the time I've worked with it, it becomes this kind of pliable, plastic, fluid material, quite unlike cardboard Mm. um, that you might imagine. And this is through a process of darting, taping, rolling, I I pulverize it and turn it into this sort of three-dimensional sculptural piece that becomes a chair or or a light. So I love that transformation from, you know, the two-dimensional into the three-dimensional object. I'm really into that. Mm. I mean, you can see in the studio, a lot of our Earth to Sky uh, mock-ups are made in card, the mirror, Mock-up is also made in card, the paper planes, mock-up, impossible wood, cardboards, and we've got a whole storage full of our cardboard mock-ups as well. But materials, they bring their own language to the object that you're creating. So, you know, at the moment I'm really into working with clay because I, I need to work on more sort of sophisticated form language and that requires more of a sculpted approach. Card is interesting because all you need to do is make a dart in the card, join it. And then the card through its own natural tension describes the form for you. So I love that idea that you're partially in control of the outcome, but the material is giving you the rest of the information. It's it's the material is describing what it needs to be. And that means that for a lot of our work, we're able to do pieces that actually look quite kind of radical in their appearance but natural at the same time. And they feel natural because it's the material that has defined the form through its kind of natural properties and the way that it wants to bend or fold. or The tension in the, the, tension material. In the material. But even when it's changed into a different material when it's finally manufactured. Yes, that's where Fiona comes in. <laughs> but, you know, but you never realised you'd have a cameo role in this. Fiona. But also I think that's the kind of... Of course, we are translating these pieces into three-dimensional and then you're putting it on the computer. And I think the challenge is how do you keep that kind of essence? Because, of course, the piece is not made in card, right, or any other, or wire that Mm. we've used. But I think what's interesting is the tension that you get when you work with materials, the lines that you get because of how the material wants to move. And then we try to translate that into 3D 
And then there's the additional kind of process of it being made in the real material. Mm. But I think the ideas are starting from making or drawing. And it doesn't start on the computer is what yeah. we no, are trying absolutely. to say. Absolutely. You know? And absolutely. I think that um, it's a kind of back and forth process because when you start to put these pieces in production, the final material also has its own properties. So then you kind of go back to the mock-up, drawing, mock-up. So it's a, you know, like a sofa, for example, you can never make it on the computer, mm. you know, because the fabric and the foam behaves in a certain way. And you only find that out when you make the mock-up or the f- company you're working with make the prototype. Yeah, the quilt on sofa that we designed for Hay, we essentially asked them to send us a pile of wood and foam and some stitched fabric. And we made the prototype in the studio pretty much with, you know, very basic line drawings and measurements initially. But it was working on the project. It was working on the piece. And I, I really believe that brought a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. Final identity. Yeah. Well, look, we left your career in about 2003. Yeah. You've been making cookware, Tifal. Um, I mean, subsequently, I remember you doing an exhibition design for the Welcome Collection. But I guess the next big break came in 2007 when you did these extraordinary colourful daybeds entitled Chapois for the Italian manufacturer Moroso. How important was Moroso to your career? And I guess specifically Patrizia. Up till then, of course, we launched a collection with Tefal. We'd done some work with Habitat as well. And then we also did My World for, it was for Experimenta, which was in Lisbon. Lisbon, Lisbon. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that what we realized is, of course, that we needed to work with an Italian company because the reach of an Italian design-led company is, you know, and they're very experimental in their work. And I remember working, uh, reading an article about Patrizia Moroso. And I said to Jonathan, if there's one Italian company that I think will be open to our work, it'll be Moroso. Because you have to also remember that Italian design was still very much in the late 90s, early 2000, very minimal, Mm. very clean. And I remember Patrizia Moroso had started working with Todd Bunche, with Patrizia Urchiola. So it felt like it was a company which was open to different uh, approaches. So we wrote to Patrizia and she received this beautiful package from us and Wallpaper had awarded us Best Breakthrough Designers in 2006, 2007. So she received the magazine and she received our package, so to speak. And, you know, she decided to come to London And we'd worked on the charpoy as a kind of proposal for the My World project. And she said, let's make a collection out of this. You have to uh, tell Grant about the charpoy project, what it involved. So, of course, the the project was um, a daybed with the game embroidered on it. And uh, and the mattress uh, was completely hand embroidered in India in my aunt's workshop. Mm. And she had a workshop of about 50 to 60 master craftspeople making things for Isimiyaki, for Hermes, you know, incredibly beautifully handmade things. And then the base was, of course, made by Moroso in Italy. And it was a series of four day bets that we did using this game of Chopar, uh, which is based on the mythical, uh, what do you like call chess, it? Like chess, basically. It's like chess. It's, yeah. That's where yeah. chess comes yeah. from. And in the Mahabharat, the Indian epic, it led to the big war because you know, money was lost playing Chopar. But the idea of um, placing this game or weaving this game into the Charpoy was to, you know, it was a story about the Charpoy or the daybed is a place for kind of a collaboration. 
it was actually originally that piece was a mattress in the installation we did, yes. like Nipper was saying, yeah. for Lisbon Biennale, where we were exploring this idea of the shop, the Indian shop, where you walk in, take off your sandals, walk into the shop. There are many other people in the shop with you. You sit on a mattress on the floor, um, talk to the craftsperson or the jeweler or wherever. Who's, you making, know, your... who's making your piece. And this idea that it was as much about a kind of a social interaction as it was a commercial exchange. And in, in the same shop, you might have um, a matlo, a terracotta water vessel, and terracotta cools water through the evaporative process by about 14 degrees. So we were really interested in how aspects of Indian culture could be kind of brought into a kind of European design context. So that's how the, the charpoy was born, really. It was this space where the people in the shop would talk to each other and have a social interaction as well as Clear an game. interaction with, with the shopkeeper. And it was a meeting of Indian craft and Italian, slightly more industrial Absolutely. craft, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And, Eventually, yes. You know, I think also it was so rooted in making and handmaking and craft. And I think in the context of Salone del Mobile and the fair, it it just felt so radical and so new to have these four pieces that mm. were beautifully embroidered by master craftswomen in India, you know, along with Italian industrial production. And all the craftspeople and all the makers had embroidered their name on each piece. And, you know, it was something quite different. Coming back to your question, how important was that work with Moroso? It was essential because... Until then, we were creating all of this work, having these ideas about how to combine culture and design. But I wouldn't say that it was gaining any traction as such. And what we needed was a kind of an international platform to present these ideas and our way of thinking. And Patrizia Moroso gave us that. You know, she, she embraced it. Did it change the trajectory of your career? Because back in that first interview that I read, which you did in Blueprint in 2003, and you, you've alluded to it here, is you talked about helping companies enter the Asian market. But since 2007, you know, you seems to me you've concentrated in working at the higher end of the design world, you know, Moroso, B&B Italia, Catal, BD Barcelona, Hay, Quadrat. You did do a collection for John Lewis. That's yes. true. But, and I'm, but, I'm interested in why you did that. Yes, what's interesting and what you've touched on there is that you know, with the Tefal collection, for example, we did propose to Tefal that we design pieces that are manufactured for the Indian market. But the project that eventually happened was almost the reverse. They came back and said, well, you know, customers in Europe are really interested in cuisine from around the world. So how can we import that culture to the European environment or market? It's almost like the reverse has happened from that initial concept. Still valid, still an exchange and still very much what we want to do. But I think going back to your question, we did write to a lot of Indian companies as well, you know, whether it's Bajaj who makes scooters and, you know, many other Indian companies to say, well, why don't you design products that are kind of rooted in Indian culture, for example? And of course, you know, you also have to remember you, we've worked with all these kind of what you say, high-end design companies, what you need for design is you need a culture in the company also to create design. And a lot of big companies don't have that culture. Mm. And mm. I mean, you know, Apple and few other companies are an exception that they're really using design. Most companies are not interested in design, big manufacturers. And what we realized is that design is a very small part of 
changing the culture of a company. A company also has to know how to sell design, you know, how to develop it, how to do research. So I think in the end, we've ended up working with companies which have a very strong design culture. Right, right. And they happen to be companies, you know, that are high-end. But within high-end, we're also working with Hay, you know, and then we are doing gallery pieces for Crayol. And I think that, of course, our products are not mass, although they are industrially manufactured, they're not mass produced. Uh, You know, even if I look at the sofa we've done for Hay or the pieces we've done for Hay. But what I love about the work that we do is that I also see that it keeps craftsmanship alive. And I think when people say, well, you know, I look at companies like Morozo, BNB Italia, uh, Hay, BD, Ketal, they're really invested in making. And, you know, they really care about the people who are working in their factories. And the people who are working in their factories are coming from the neighborhood. They're not displaced people who are going, looking for a job outside of the community that they grew up in. So I think for me, that's a very important aspect of working with these companies is that making, they're rooted in making these companies. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go back to John Lewis because I'm intrigued. Was that an attempt to um, right, so to find a different market? No, that, what happened there is that, you know, we worked solely in Europe and we didn't have one client in the UK and we really liked the idea of just walking down the road and having a meeting instead of having to fly <laughs> off somewhere. It was as simple as that. And we thought, who can we work with who's based here in London and we can get some kind of dialogue going and, and have, you know, a creative discussion. So John Lewis is a, can we say institution? Yeah, we can. <laughs> let's, let's call it an institution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we saw this opportunity to do a whole collection for them. We called it Open Home. It was looking at how, you know, lifestyle at home is kind of becoming more blurred, the boundaries between different living spaces, you know, between cooking, eating, living, lounging. And we wanted to create this environment of objects that could support that way of life. And so we did. We're coming to the end of our time. So last couple of questions. Going back to that original 2003 interview at Blueprint, I mean, Nipper, you said that you wanted to challenge the cliched stereotyping of India, which is limited to a stylistic parody of Bollywood kitsch and curry houses. I'm trying to represent my culture in all its complexity and sophistication. So we're nearly 20 years on. Do you feel you've done that? I think I have. And I think that you can see that in the work that we've done. Is, um, you know, I always say that there are more than a billion Indian people. So, you know, I'm not the only one who's a carrier of Indian culture, so to speak, but it's how you translate what you know and how do you take the influences and and kind of play with it. And so I think our work doesn't look Indian, but you also know mm. that there is a voice from somewhere else. And I think that it was very important for me that people understand India is not just one thing. It's not just ancient or traditional you know, it has a huge culture of plurality and modernity. And it's something that I think reflects in our work. Something I definitely should have asked, which I haven't, but I'm going to now, is when you're working with a manufacturer, are there projects that are more Jonathan, more Nipper? I mean, I'm guessing when you look at Quadra, I'm guessing Nipper, that's more you than Jonathan. But, but And does it work Correct. the other way around? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's the only kind of area in which... I think the color work is definitely coming from me, Mm. the color and the textile work. And yet Jonathan is involved in the kind of editing or kind of, you know, almost being the objective eye when it comes to the project. 
but it's definitely it's something I do. The color and the the materials mm. definitely. We're dedicating a whole new space to to that work. In fact, we're opening up the studio next door ah. to be a color lab. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it's a really important aspect of of our work. It's yeah, become yeah. so strong. That was going to be my final question, which is future plans. So, color lab. Yeah, is one Absolutely. thing that you're doing. Yep. When is that going to happen? Beginning of April. (laughs) (laughs) Beginning of April. But I think we also kind of, the Color Lab is also going to be a space where, you know, it's going to kind of double up also as a salon space. We want to have events or have talks. So I think, especially after the pandemic, I feel like it's time to kind of welcome people back into our world and also connect with the local London you know, mm. where we live. And there's so many incredible creative people in London as well. So somehow make it an interactive space as well. So people will be able to come up and see you talk about colour and this is the notion? Or well, be other not just guest about speakers? colours, guest speakers. Um, of course, it'll primarily be a colour lab and, uh, you know, to to really develop that side of our work more. Although we do a lot of it, it's something that People not not many people know about mm. the amount of color and material research that we actually are involved in, and then also to have it as another space to have talks and to have events to show new work, and uh, yeah, more public facing, I suppose. Very good. Well, that's a lovely, lovely place to leave it, Jonathan Nipper. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. And to discover more about Nipper and Jonathan, go to doshilevine.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.